Good morning, everyone. Scripture this morning is again from Genesis, chapter 3, verses 6 and 14 through 24. You can find it on page 6 of your bulletin if you want to read along. For those of you a few weeks ago who were wondering, what's the deal with snakes? Now you get the rest of the story. When the woman saw the fruit of the, tr- of, a tr- of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. and painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth, to guard the way to the tree of life. Thank you, Ben. We have, for the last uh, few months, been working through just the first three chapters of the entire Bible, Genesis 1 through 3, and we have called this mini-series, medium-series, Beginnings, looking at the beginning of all things, and now today we have come to the end of the beginnings and uh, our final sermon in this series. Let's take a look one more time at Genesis 3, but let's first pray. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would make good on your promise that you'll be present through your word. We know you're here. We pray that you would open up our hearts, our lives, our minds every part of us, that we would bow before you and let you in and let you speak, that you would change our lives. I pray that every person here would be impacted by the power of your spirit through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just yesterday I was uh, clicking around on the internet through a series of different articles and came across one uh, that was entitled this, Would You Know If You Were In A Dysfunctional Relationship? Uh, Would you know if you were in a dysfunctional relationship? Uh, It's a title that almost wants to make you nervous, right? 
make a little bit of clickbait there. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I need to read. This passage that we're reading here actually has a little bit of that spirit. Uh, Would you even know it? Do you know that you are, in fact, living a life in dysfunctional relationship in all kinds of relationships because of the brokenness of life in this world? See, the story of Genesis, the story of Scripture, is that all things were made in perfect harmony with one another, with God at the center, God as the glue, God as the organizing principle, God as the power, the person that holds all things together. We lived in wholeness, in integratedness, in what the Bible calls shalom. Even here in this passage that there is a a walking in the garden together with God. The man and the woman, they took walks with God. Can you imagine it? That kind of intimacy, that kind of covenant fellowship. They had great harmonious relationships with each other. We were told, as we've examined in past weeks, that they were naked but not ashamed. Fully disclosed and known. And not hiding. Created in the image of God, they were charged with this mission of making this world a clear reflection of all the beauties and the glories and the truth of who God is. And it would have been a joy to do it. Just like you can't stop talking about someone that you love who has so changed your life in the same way as an overflow of joy, this mission would be a delight to all people in this paradise, in their work, in their relationships, in their daily life, making this place a clear vision of the God of this creation. But then, of course, the story goes that Shalom is suddenly ruptured, torn apart, vandalized, violated. Adam and Eve, they try to become like God, the lust of all of our hearts. God, I've got it from here. Let me take over. God, you're not doing your job right. Let me take over. They believe the lie of the serpent and they take the fruit. And you know, by the way, that every act of sin involves believing a lie. We're clear on that, right? Involves a false promise. What's the area of sin that you've most been struggling with? And will you dare to examine it to see what's the lie underneath that you've been believing? The whisper of the serpent. Of course, as a result of this rebellion against God, this distrust of this God, this move aside, let me be God, oh God our alienations with this God. Of course, a broken relationship with Him. But not just a broken relationship with God running from God, but also a broken relationship with ourselves. The way in which sin as a result has has sort of blinded us from being able to see ourselves clearly. Where now we look to everything and anything to give ourselves a sense of meaning, of purpose, of happiness, Are we now so driven by fear, by guilt, by shame, by arrogance, by insecurity? 
You might even say we're enslaved, stuck, not free. This is because of the ways in which we live with a broken relationship with ourselves. It also shows up in having a broken relationship with each other, not just with God, not just with myself, but also with each other. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? If you've dethroned God and now you sort of live with a quiet God complex, well, you're probably sort of hard to be around. It stands to reason, doesn't it? The way in which you will do anything to get ahead, to do your thing, the way the world, even the universe, revolves around yourself. You know, the past few weeks really should have convinced us that you and me, our our biggest problems today lie inside of us, not outside of us. Our tendency is to look without, not within. Look, your biggest problem today, as terrible and terrifying as your circumstances may be, and as hard as they might be, your biggest problem lies right in here. At least I know that is true for me. Broken relationship with God, broken relationship with ourselves, with each other. And lastly, what we're looking at today is that we also have, as a result of sin and evil entering into our reality, a broken relationship with creation, with the physical world around us, with our environment. It's a strange thing. You think about it, it, it's just fascinating, actually terribly tragic to think that the effects of sin are so powerful that they even spill over into the physical world in which we live. I mean, think about that. If, if you're not convinced of the power of evil in my heart and in yours... Consider this, so powerful is it that it even spills over into the trees and the lions and the bears and the rocks and the skies and we'll get into it some more. But the fall of man sends a shockwave of death and decay into the world. As one author put it, once a friend under our dominion, the natural world is now hostile to us. What is this? This curse of creation because of the fall of man? And how are we healed of it? Can we take a look at those two things in the remaining time that we have? What does this curse of creation, this fallenness of our physical world look like? And how does God rescue us from it? There are a couple of areas that this one passage describes for us. The ways in which all of life is infected and cursed and broken by sin. First of all, check out the animals. Verse 15, God is talking to the serpent and he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Of course, that is speaking figuratively of the spiritual struggle that will evolve over time. The struggle between good and evil. It's actually a word of grace that God would change the woman's heart and all who would follow after her to actually hate evil. Is that beginning to happen to take place in your heart? But it also represents something a little bit more matter-of-fact as well. 
It's the beginning of the rupture between the relationship between humanity and the animal world over which we were placed to be humble stewards and leaders. I mean, this picture of Dr. Doolittle, that wonderful tale, is actually a wonderful, helpful story, picture, of what our relationship with the animal kingdom always was intended to be. You were meant to have harmonious relationships, even with the things of the wild around us. It's part of our stewardship, our relationship with the world. Of course, that's not the way the world is today. I was experiencing this the other day as I was flipping through different YouTube videos with my kids, of course, trying to give them beyond a picture of the cartoon versions of animals that they get to see, but rather to see live pictures of real animals in their own natural habitat, of course, which is a risky proposition uh, to do with a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And so I start with my son's favorite animal, the elephant, uh, and I'm clicking through and showing these cute baby elephants only to come across these little uh, preview pictures and headlines which read, uh, matriarch elephants protect baby elephant from crocodile attack. And I say, okay, moving on here. Uh, We're not clicking on that one. And so we move then to polar bears who dance throughout the night, cuddly and white. And then, of course, we come across polar bear attacks seal and woman attacked by polar bears at Berlin Zoo. And we say, okay, moving along. And so you've got to go to just what the safest animal that you can conceive of, a giraffe, of course, right? I mean, giraffes, right? When we play animal noises... You know, we do lions roar and dogs, you know, rough and uh, elephants do their, you know, thing. They're trumpeting. You're trying to make me do it. No, that trumpeting thing. You get to giraffes and the kids, we just look at each other because what does a giraffe say? No one knows. This is how mild giraffes are. They don't even talk apparently, right? Of course, then we come across this link here. Giraffe attacks lion pride and kicks one of them to death. (gasps) Not even the giraffe can be spared, apparently. You know, there's a right time to reveal these things to my children. It is just not yet, right? Uh, These conversations are for uh, a later date. You know, the birds and the bees and then the truth about giraffes, right? (laughs) We're getting there. Even the animal kingdom, red in tooth and claw. Of course, we hear here in verse 16 this word about the pain of childbearing. This too, some of the outworkings of the fallenness of life here. Since some of you know this all too well and too personally. Verse 16, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. Uh, God talking to the woman Eve, with painful labor, you would give birth to children. And of course, this indicates to us that there actually is nothing natural at all about the pain of natural childbirth. It is actually a product of the fall, and it is something that does terrorize us. Well, not us, some of you, right? As a result of our fall. 
It extends beyond simply the pain of childbearing, of course, pain in general entering into our life and world. Can you imagine a life without pain? It was so. It one day will be so, but not today. Life so wrought and full of even physical pain. Thirdly, we see this word about the frustration that we experience in our work. Verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. I mean, you realize from the beginning uh, that humanity as the kings and queens of the earth were always intended to have the ground as their servants. The dirt was your friend, and now the dirt will be your foe. All of life will be spent fighting against the ground, fighting it, in fact, for your whole life until, in the end, guess who wins? The dirt. All of us will end up six feet under, we're told. That even our work will be wrought with frustration, the thorns and thistles, everything that you experience, whether you're paid for work or not, the exercise of your gifts and abilities, when that song writing project just doesn't come through, when the melody isn't working out, when that painting is just coming out all wrong, when your work is blocked, when your computer fries, when your child isn't doing as they're being told, when your house crumbles down, the car won't turn on. When things fall apart, it's part of this very curse. The frustration of all of life, the things that we put our hands to because of the fall. The ground will resist you even as you try to pull from it the fruit of life. Because the very ground itself is cursed. And of course, this reminds us that even very natural disasters themselves, the hurricanes and the avalanches and the blowing winds and the seas that drown and the things that terrorize humanity, things that are beyond our control, not the sin of any one person, but certainly evil in the brokenness of life. This too, even this too, is part of the fallenness of life. And of course, as I alluded to earlier, pronounced over humanity is this curse of death. Verse 19, the dirt wins until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And we're going to focus this on this a little bit more next week, this curse of death, as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But it's a reminder again and again that even our physical death, the violent tearing apart of body and soul, was never how God intended us to experience life. And yet, not just the fallenness of the finality of death, but even the process of death, all of life wrought with decay and disease and dying. We can mask it partially and temporarily with cosmetics or refrigeration or with pictures of sunny skies, and yet none of us can avoid it. Our bodies are broken, our bodies are breaking. 
And whether if you struggle with physical disabilities or mental disabilities or chemical imbalances and disabilities, or if you are ailing with chronic illness and pain, or if you have that diagnosis that the doctors just can't figure out, if you're struggling with the pains of life, you understand that even this too is part of the fallenness of our world because of Adam and Eve's sin. Every area of life infected in some way or another by sin and evil. As commentator and scholar Derek Kidner put it, that through the fall of Adam and Eve, leaderless, the choir of creation can only grind on in discord. Before we move on to talk about what God does about this, I want to pause and just point out one key lesson that I think is really important for us to come away with as we ponder just the comprehensive scope of the effect of sin upon the world. And it's this, that it really, really ought to humble us. Because we do not take sin and evil seriously enough, do we? We really, really do not. We do our best to minimize, to wink, and to look away from, to excuse, or to deflect blame when we ourselves fall. And behold the power of the shockwave of our ruptured relationship with God. Our rebellion against the God of all shalom and compassion and generosity and glory that we would walk away from him and then walk away from one another. That that rupture would be so deep and extensive in its effect on reality that literally the ground would start shaking. I mean, can you consider that earthquakes are indeed an aftershock literally of human evil not directly in every case a cause connecting straight lines from my culpability to what's going on in natural disasters around the world but to understand that the world quakes and shakes and bad things happen and brokenness persists because we are at our core yes good made in the image of God but also very terribly bad do you believe it and will you see the brokenness in life as evidence of it. And in fact, when we see around us death and disease and decay and frustration and pain and even the claws and fangs of the animal world around us, that what this passage invites us to do is to give us even a first-hand experience of our, of our sin's effect upon our Creator, God himself. You see, because the, the wonderful and terrible irony of all that is cursed before us is that God is giving you, sort of giving us, giving the human race a, a punishment that fits the crime. You see, for the first two people to say to God, back off, I've got this under control. You ain't the God of me. 
Now all things that God entrusted to humanity is saying the same thing to you and me. Even the dirt rebelling against you. The things that you put your hand to to bring order out of chaos, whether if it's a spreadsheet or if it's a target shelf. You ain't the boss of me. Whether if it's relationships with other people or relationships with the rats in your alley. You ain't the boss of me. Rebellion against you and me in the form of the brokenness of life. As scholar Bruce Walke puts it, the man's relationship to the ground to rule over it is reversed. Instead of submitting to him, it resists and eventually swallows him. And so every time you experience pain and brokenness and even horror in life, do you understand you're given a glimpse into the reality of your sin in relationship to God? Your rebellion, your resistance against God. Do you feel how it feels? Do you feel how it feels? And yet the good news, of course, in all of this is not just that creation is cursed, but creation is also rescued. There's good news and hope that with such thorough infection of our world with the power of sin, yet grace is always greater than our sin. Here's good news, verse 15. In the midst of pronouncing this curse over the serpent, God says this, I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God is making, in the midst of the deepest of darkness, the, the clouds have come and gathered around the world and around humanity. And yet, here is just a piercing ray of light, a a ray of redemption and hope, even in the midst of curse that God delivers to the man and to the woman. A stunning promise that one day Eve's offspring, one of her very own descendants, a human being, will come and destroy sin and evil and all that the serpent helped to bring into this world. Indeed, this son of Eve will one day crush the serpent's head. We're told before that, Serpent, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life, which is richly symbolic language telling us that the serpent's going to bite the dust, as it were. The handwriting's already on the wall. There will one day be a rescuer. The first Adam should have crushed this serpent in the face of temptation, but he didn't. The second Adam, one who will come from this first couple, one day they are told, will a son of Eve, the first queen of creation, a son of Adam, the original king of God's cosmos, the royal son, a rescuer, 
will make all things right. Now, who could this be? The rest of the Old Testament is a search for that answer. Who could this be? And if you were here for our call to worship, you know it's the very same question that the crowds were asking when Jesus, centuries, even millennia later, rode on in on a donkey, riding the way ancient kings would one day also ride in to their people. This Jesus, the one who would claim to be the king of the world, the king of his people, who would come to endure and overcome every part of this curse of sin that we have seen and studied. That in fact, we're told that in the outset of his ministry, he was thrown out into the wilderness and tempted by the serpent himself, Satan. And yet this time he was successful, not giving in. And this curious word from Mark 1.13, we're told that he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals. Telling us that already here is the true Adam beginning the healing of this rupture that we have with the angry giraffes. He's begun making all things right and new. The one who stood before howling winds and terrorizing storms and with just a word said, be still. And the winds died down and the waves calmed. And even his disciples turned to each other and said, who is this? Who is this? that the winds and the waves themselves obey. The one who endured the rupture of human relationships being betrayed and ignored and denied and even hated by the very ones he came to save and love, even his dearest friends. The one who bore and fought against thorns and thistles, not only living himself a life of toil and sweat and conflict, but even wearing a crown of thorns upon his head as he bore on the cross the deepest of all ruptures, a rupture with a relationship with his Father, the one with whom he had experienced eternal and infinite harmony and love. Suddenly the Father turns his face away and the sun cries out with hellish terror as the judgment and wrath of God poured out upon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God bearing the death and the judgment that you and I deserve, he bearing it in our place, you see, because even the death that Adam and Eve and all those who would proceed them, that we deserve as part of the curse for sin. Jesus, the coming King, the promised one, would one day and truly did bear for us. And from the beginning, God told us that this is how it would be. Didn't he? Didn't he? Did you notice it? When he said, of course... To the serpent, 
that this coming offspring, he, he would come and crush your head. But what else? You will strike his heel. He will get a fatal wound in the process of saving humanity. The venomous serpent will strike his heel. Satan would have his moment. Though Jesus, the Savior, would have the victory. The coming one would deliver humanity, but only by losing his life would he purchase life. The serpent will be crushed, but only by the crushing of the deliverer. The one who would have to go through the sword of the cherubim, the judgment of heaven itself, in order to bring back those who fall in the footsteps of Adam and Eve back into the perfect presence of God. Are you hungry for this? Are you salivating in your soul for this fullness of redemption? Do you understand, friends, that God has not given up on this world and He has not given up on you? This is the great hope that you have. Do you have it? Do you have it? This story of grace, a God who relentlessly pursues his people, even in the midst of the darkest of the darkest of moments. I mean, can you just picture it? God's not dilly-dallying around. He's not stepping back and say, Adam and Eve, you made this mess. Figure it out. Go for it. He doesn't step back and say, let me let you eat it for a while and then I'll come on in. In the middle of explaining the extent of all that they had just jacked up and all that we screw up about life, grace invades. As Eugene Peterson, author and Christian thinker, described the superlative redemption of Christ, he says this, God's love is meteoric, his loyalty astronomic, his purpose titanic, his verdicts oceanic. Grace, grace, grace. I mean, the juice from the forbidden fruit is almost barely dried on Adam's face. Eve is still almost picking out the seeds from her teeth and God is already talking about how he's going to forgive them and rescue them. Do you know this God who throughout the Old Testament has testified as being a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And as the Apostle Paul put in Romans 5, so succinctly and so true to this passage, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Hosanna. So what can you do? And how can you respond quickly and in closing? How can you then respond? There's hate, there's hope, and there's hands. You notice 
enmity placed between the serpent's offspring and the woman's. You see, in God's mercy, he changes the woman's friendship with sin and Satan and makes it a righteous desire for God. One thing God does when he opens our hearts to this rescue and this story of redemption is he gives us grace to learn to hate sin and evil. Starting with the junk that's in my own heart. To say with deep grief and personal terror, I can't stand the way that I do that to you, God. I can't stand the way that I'm so ungrateful and so heinous in my rebellion against you. Because you have loved me so. How can I dare to live this way and to desire this way against you? And to also hate the evil, not just in my heart, but around us in the world and in the brokenness of life. To have a restlessness against us, to, to, against it. To have as a cry of your heart, come Lord Jesus, this isn't the way you intended things to be. But then also for there to be in your heart, hope. Hope. You see, after all of this, Adam, you see in verse 20, names his wife Eve, a word that in the ancient Hebrew means living, we're told, because she would become the mother of all the living. See, Adam understood and he had heard that they would live to see another day. He actually heard the promise and he believed it, that his wife would one day maybe soon and maybe later, become the mother of the rescuer of the world. He believed God's promise and therefore he had hope. You have to not only start to have horror and even hatred for the sin and brokenness in your own life, but you cry out in hope and in hunger for a savior where you embrace the rescue that's been provided for you. But then lastly, you reach out with hands that you let the love of Jesus flood our hearts so much that I begin to be moved to serve people. You see, here's the thing. The good news of this passage is that as broken as this world is, good news, relief. You are not called, you are not called to save the world. That's Jesus's job. Maybe some of you need to hear that and take a big, deep, life-giving exhale. But because Jesus has done his job and granted you redemption with joy and strength and hope of the deliverer, He does call us to be part of his work of redemption and giving little foretastes of what this life in this world one day will be. To give little glimpses and previews of what a healed world will look like, restored in our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with our broken, now healed world. 
that in the work of your hands, in your homes, in your relationships, on your neighborhood blocks, with people like you and people very, very different for you, from you, that you yourselves might reach out with the healer's hands and become healers of this world yourself. As Romans 16.20 says with such promise and vigor, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Because Jesus has begun his reign in this world through his people, the body of Christ, through the church, beginning to subdue all things that have risen against him. That you and I are sent out with joy and gladness as agents of his healing in this world. Until that one day when he comes again. And when he's going to make all things new. Starting with you. From the throne of Jesus flows such power and resurrection life. That no disease, no decay, no pain No sin will stand against it. You know these words from the hymn, Joy to the World, which so often is sung during Christmas time. It's a good song for Easter time as well. You might have noticed the words and how much it is a meditation upon this very passage here, telling us about the brokenness of life and yet also the healing brought to us by the King. The first verse goes like this. You may be familiar with it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. But do you know the third verse? It goes like this. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Let's pray. It's with hope that we hear that. That your grace, the blessings of your life and resurrection, Jesus, will extend as far as the curse is found And we look around the world and see how badly the world around us is in need of your healing, your redemption. And yet we start right here. I start right here in my own heart, my life. Start here. Bring healing and freedom and redemption and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing. As we sing, let's... Let's let him into our hearts. Let's let him into our lives.